had someone rage quit today. I played Risk Factor on turn three, and they took four damage. And then on turn four, instead of flashing it back, I just played another Risk Factor, and then they rage quit. <laughs> they, they knew it was not going to be sustainable for very long. Yeah. Hello, I'm David Prestwood. And I'm Christian Wright. Welcome to episode 20 of Let's Remember Some Cards. We're going to do something a little different this week. We're going to talk about professional magic players. But wait, what do you mean? We remember cards on this podcast, not players. That is true. Fortunately, there are a number of cards out there with pro players featured in the art. These are the invitational cards, and we'll be remembering them today. (laughs) Oh yeah, how could I forget about those cards? Well, before we talk about them, let's remember that. Today's card is Arc Lightning. All right, so Arc Lightning is two and a red for a sorcery, and it deals three damage divided as you choose among one, two, or three targets. It was last printed in Khans of Tarkir as an uncommon, and before that it was first printed in Urza Saga as a common. Yeah, Arc Lightning is awesome. It's very flexible. It's very efficient. You know, three mana for three damage is something that you would pay in limited for the most part, but... Do you, the fact that you can kill a number of different creatures, you can throw a little extra damage at your opponent's face, is really nice. It is really nice, and I can't speak to its effectiveness in Urza Saga Limited. I wasn't playing Limited really during that time. But I can say when it was in cons, I remember a lot of times it would you kill a morph and another dude, a morph and hit your face, or three little dudes. Like It was just a very flexible, as you said, flexible and multi-variable-purposed burn spell yeah i wonder actually how many times this has gone to the face versus how many times this has just killed three one toughness creatures (laughs) probably about even i bet wizards has that data in in moto but uh you know yeah this is a cool card i uh i really like the cons art better than the original art the original art is a guy i think he's either on a branch or a ledge and it looks like he's summoning lightning that's hitting two guys that are fighting the cons art is a dragon, Coligan style dragon, breathing lightning through a couple of guys. And it makes me think of the old Dungeons and Dragons spell Chain Lightning, where you shoot it at one creature and then it like hits other creatures that are behind them in range. Oh yeah. It looks it looks super cool. And the original Urza Saga one, as you said, not much to look at. And I hope they just keep using that for future printings of it. Unless, of course, for some reason, you know, it's reprinted in, say, a Ravnica block one, and all of a sudden we have, like, Rakdos throwing some fire, lightning. You know what? We'll work with it. Wizards can work with it. I'm in. I'm in for it all. Generally, you would hope when a card has lightning in the name, the card is awesome. There have been a lot of really bad cards with lightning in the name, but cards like Lightning Bolt and Arc Lightning, there are a lot of other good choices. So I'm glad that we got a good one today. Awesome. Arc Lightning. Okay, so on to Invitational cards. Before we get to the individual invitational cards, that's a mouthful, we should probably talk about how the cards came to be. So the Magic Invitational, it was a yearly tournament held by Wizards of the Coast, and it started in 1996, and it went for 11 years and finished in 2007. It was conceived by Mark Rosewater, and it was kind of designed as the all-stars for Magic tournaments, and it was really cool. They picked 16 players, usually it's the 16 best players in the world, And then they mixed up and they added magic personalities eventually. What was really interesting about it is it allowed them to try different variants of magic. In some of the more famous ones, they had one called Duplicate Limited, 
which was everyone got the same sealed pool and they built sealed decks based on that pool five color which was a variant format when they highlighted it at the invitational and you had to have a 250 card deck which had to have equal amounts of cards in each color and the winner though of the entire match was not determined by if you won or lost it was determined by who won the most ante and that's maybe how Kai Bude got his invitational card and then the last one was auction the people where players bet on decks that they would play by bidding their starting life and starting hand size so explain that for a sec. So you're saying that there were a bunch of pre-built decks and a player would say, I want to play this deck and I'll start at 18 life and a six card hand. And then somebody could undercut them if they wanted to play that deck. Oh yeah, that's exactly it. And in fact, that's, if I remember correctly, and you can send us a tweet or an email if I'm wrong, but I think that's how Diego Chan won his invitational because everyone underbid each other on all these busted decks that were submitted so everyone underbid and then the last two or three the the remaining players were like you could take that deck i'll take this deck i'll have seven eight cards and 25 life sweet (laughs) and turns out when you have to start with four cards in a combo deck it's still not very good well that's incredibly wacky so you may be asking how does this tie into the cards the winner of the invitational tournament would get to design their own card and for which they would work with R&D to make sure that it was appropriate and would appear in a future standard legal set. And then their likeness would appear in the art. And some of these cards have actually turned out to have quite an impact on the game. Oh yeah, they definitely had an impact. There were overall 11 invitational cards printed. So rather than do a top eight, we'll just talk about each of them from the ranking of the worst invitational card to the best invitational card. There's also a special exception, which we'll give as our honorable mention. All right. Why don't you start with that one? Fire it away. Yeah, so the honorable mention is Gemstone Caverns. So Gemstone Caverns is a legendary land from Time Spiral, and it's a rare. And it says, if Gemstone Caverns is in your opening hand and you're not playing first, you may begin the game with Gemstone Caverns on the battlefield with a luck counter on it. If you do, exile a card from your hand, and then its activate ability is tap add one colorless mana to your mana pool. If Gemstone Caverns has a luck counter on it, instead add one mana of any color to your mana pool so if you're on the draw you can start with this land in play if it's in your opener go down a card to do so but it taps for one mana of any color yeah it was designed by siyoshi fujita as kind of this nice catch-up card that wouldn't adversely impact you if you started second so it's exactly that like you traded away a dead card in your hand to allow you to get a jump on your opponent it also kind of is very hearthstone like it there's in Hearthstone they have a mechanic called the coin so if you go second you have an extra mana that you can play with and it's pretty much the just the coin as a permanent card it's interesting that this is legendary I'm sure that creates some you know how many of these do you actually want in your deck for example obviously you know if you want to get it out free on the draw you'd want a bunch of them but a legendary land could be a huge problem and the reason why we're talking about this too is we mentioned Tsuyoshi Fujita So he designed this card for the 2005 Invitational. And in the 2005 Invitational, they had a special feature where the community could vote on the card they thought was best design or their favorite or however they wanted to vote on it. And the winner who did not win the entire Invitational would have their card designed and put in the game, just not with their art. And so, or with their, sorry, with their face in the art. So gemstone caverns won they did a little bit of tweaking if i remember correctly 
I think the it's floating on the internet somewhere. We'll have to find a link to it. I think the original wasn't legendary. I think it was just a land. <laughs> so they did balance it, and it won in in Magic history. So that was our honorable mention. So David, what starts off the unfortunately the worst invitational card ever created? Well, we're going to start with Rakdos Augur Mage. Rakdos Augur Mage is black, black, red for a 3-2 human wizard. It has first strike, and it has an activated ability. Reveal your hand and discard a card of target opponent's choice. Then that player reveals their hand and discards a card of your choice. And you activate this only anytime you could cast a sorcery. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah, who wants this card? I mean, I guess if you want to get Hellbent... Maybe you want this card, and then you can take cards out of your opponent's hand. But this is uh, this is not great. There's a reason this is one of the few that has never been reprinted. Yeah, and it's really funny you say Hellbent because it was printed in Dissension. So it technically did care about you being Hellbent, but who knew that, that if you just played cards in your hand, you would naturally get Hellbent? <laughs> that seems a lot better than uh, thought-seizing yourself in order to thought-seize your opponent. Right. Also, just getting them to choose first is brutal. The person on the art for Rakdos Augur Mage is Terry So. He's a Malaysian professional player. His most significant accomplishments were top 18 worlds twice, as well as getting a top four at Pro Tour Nagoya in 2005. And he designed a card that is unique in the history of Magic. Can you guess what's unique about it? Well, it's not because it's not good there's a lot of not good magic there are a lot of not good cards that's true (laughs) no it's the only card with this mana cost black black red interesting what is the next card on our list our next card is root water thief root water thief is one in a blue for a one two merfolk rogue and it has two abilities you can pay blue to give it flying until end of turn so big time one two flyer but there's a reason. Whenever Rootwater Thief deals combat damage to a player, you can pay two. If you do, you can search that player's library for a card and exile it. Then the player shuffles their library. Okay, yeah. sure. You're just you're just cranially extracting a card from their library for some reason, but it requires you to hit them, which probably means you're paying mana to do that every turn. This is the other one that has never been reprinted, and I see why. Just not exciting. Yeah, and... The, so here's what's weird about the card. So it's not very good. As Magic players might know, the Rootwater uh, Merfolk, they're Merfolk, right? They're fish dudes. So how do you draw Mike Long on this card art? Because the creature is the Merfolk. Well, they figured out the problem. He's going to get attacked by the Merfolk, <laughs> which seems very appropriate for Mike Long. Yeah, I'm sure that the magic community was not up in arms about him probably being destroyed by a rootwater thief. So real quick on Mike Long, he's a very famous old school magic player. He had a lot of success earlier in the magic tournament history, but he's a little more famous for being controversial. He's a bit of a uh, abrasive is the best word to put it. He's famous for cards appearing on his lap during high-level magic and then claiming to not know how they got there. Our next card on the list is Shadow Mage Infiltrator. Shadow Mage Infiltrator is a a 1-3 human wizard for one colorless blue and a black. It has fear, which is it can't be blocked except by artifact creatures and or black creatures. And whenever Shadow Mage Infiltrator deals combat damage to a player, you may draw a card. This is nice. It's the Ophidian effect, but on a creature with some kind of evasion. This card is not particularly scary, 
because the evasion isn't super strong and it does cost you three mana for the effect, but that's that's nice. I'm in. And to give you some context too, Ophidian was a high-level tournament magic playable card because it gave control decks a draw engine, essentially, that turned into a win condition. And everyone was really hype about this card when it came out. Yeah, I don't think it ended up being that good, but it has the dubious distinction of being reprinted in Masters 25 at Uncommon, so maybe not as powerful as it needed to be in the long run. So there's two stories I'm going to tell about this card. The first one, real quick, is the original card that John Finkel submitted, and this was a trend with a lot of the earlier invitational cards. They printed, they submitted these really broken cards, and they had to tune them or redo them, which is why our previous card, Rootwater Thief, is bad as it is. John Finkel originally submitted a essentially supreme verdict, except instead of being can't be countered, it allowed you to untap up to four lands. <laughs> so, yeah, that's not okay. No, so Wizards is like, this is a little too good. Um, so that's why we have Shadow Mage Infiltrator. And so it came out in Odyssey. And when it came out, people were super hype about it. It was one of the chase cards when the set came out. And what people would do is they would proxy their Shadow Mage Infiltrators so they can afford them on Psychotalks. And so they would be playing blue-black control decks, trying to make Shadow Mage Infiltrator good. But then as they were playing, they're realizing, oh, wait, if I just played with the card as I printed and not the one I, sh- you know, the one I sharpied over instead of the one I'm trying to play, I would actually be in a much better position. <laughs> and that's how people figured out Psychotog was really good. I assume that because it was also a gold card for one blue-black, that's why Psychotog made sense? And it had almost the same stats. It was a 1-2. Right, and this is a 1-3. Okay, that makes sense. All right, our next card is Void Mage Prodigy. Void Mage Prodigy was blue-blue for a 2-1 human wizard. It had two abilities. One is blue-blue and sacrifice a wizard, counter-target spell. And the other one was morph. You could morph it for a single blue. So I guess the play pattern is you play this face down, you pay blue to flip it up, and then you pay blue-blue to either sacrifice it or another wizard you have and counter a spell out of nowhere. Yeah, all right. I mean, it's always Bill Willbender, right? The morph is always Willbender. Or maybe it's Void Mage Prodigy and you just straight up counter the spell. The set it was printed in, there were a lot of wizards, so who knows? So how do you like the art on this card? Uh, it's extremely bad. It looks like he is hip thrusting and shooting a giant ball from his uh, pelvis. Yeah, that sounds about right. That it's It's not very flattering. <laughs> it doesn't look like he's countering a spell. I mean, maybe the thing above him that's a crumbling ball is a spell that's supposed to be countered, but it's not coming at him. So I'm confused as to how that's supposed to work. So you're not the only one who's confused by this card. There was a lot of outrage when it came out. And so they printed a player reward card that showed a little bit more of his face, but it still wasn't It wasn't the best. <laughs> a lot of these cards have a theme in that the person who they're representing in the card does not end up looking super heroic. No. So maybe maybe if they ever do this again, the art direction will change a little bit. But I think we should know, we do think his card is better than Shadow Mage Infiltrator. Absolutely. Does that mean Kai Bude is better than John Finkel in real life? I don't know. I'm not willing to have that debate. After Void Mage Prodigy, the seventh best invitational card that we've determined is Sylvan Safekeeper. Sylvan Safekeeper is a 1-1 human wizard for one green and its ability is sacrifice a land, target creature you control gains shroud until end of turn, which means it can't be the target of spells or abilities. Yeah, this card is nice. 
I mean, by the time you're playing creatures that you want to protect from spells and abilities, you probably have a bunch of lands and sacrificing one of your lands in play to counter a spell that's going to kill that creature that you need to protect is really nice. What's cool about this card is that the winner, Ali Rade, he was the first invitational winner, but he was not. this card was not the first invitational card printed. He won in 1996, and the card, the set it was released in was Judgment, which is 2003. The problem was he went right into retirement after he won the Invitational, but he came back to play professionally. Uh, he did make, he's a Hall of, Magic Hall of Famer. The Wizards still wanted to honor, he wanted to honor the agreement, and Wizards did too, about him making this card. So they agreed with the only stipulation being that for his card art, they had to depict him with his famous long blonde hair when he won professionally back in the 90s. And that's what you see on the card art. Oh, and he didn't have it when he came back. He did not. He was bald. Okay. It was very shocking. This is a cool card. It got a reprint in uh, Commander 2014 in the mono green Commander deck, which was Titania. It was land-based. There was the Freelise Planeswalker that can be your commander was in that as well. And it actually is a really good commander card. I have it in my Skullbriar the Walking Grave commander deck, uh, which is just designed to get in and do as much damage as possible and kill someone with commander damage, where it's like, yeah, you know what? Sometimes you just need to give your creature Shroud. Why not sacrifice a land in your deck where everything costs four or less? The one last thing I want to say about Southern Safekeeper is it sees play in Legacy and Maverick sometimes because it's a tutorable green creature from Green Sun Zenith that allows you to protect your creatures from single target removal. All right, our next card is Avalanche Riders. I love this one. It's three and a red for a 2-2 human nomad. It has haste. It has echo three and a red, which means at the beginning of your upkeep, if this came under your control since the beginning of your last upkeep, you have to sacrifice it unless you pay its echo cost. But when it enters the battlefield, you destroy target land. Yeah. So this was the first invitational card, right? Yeah, this was the first one they actually printed. Was this played in the original Ponza decks? Oh, yeah. It was played. It was a cornerstone of it because you had Stone Rain and mm-hmm. you also had this and you just ramped and killed a bunch of lands. I mean, maybe Young Christian tried this once or twice. It was very tempting. Yeah, it seems like a good way to blow up a land, get in a little bit of damage. You know, if they play something else, you just let the Echo Cost go away and then continue to blow up their lands forever. <laughs> This is the kind of card that when Darwin Castle brings it to you, if you're R&D, don't you take a really hard look and say, we're blowing up lands? Like, let's think about that a little bit. Yeah, when it's released, this is not necessarily the most powerful thing you can do in Urza's Legacy. There's a few other things you can do in Standard. Sure. No, it's good. I mean, it was in World Championship decks that they printed in 1999 and 2000. So, you know, it saw a lot of success. It's still a card that is regularly included in cubes. And that's a good indication that it's something that's very powerful. It's also great in commander decks as well, because it is a really cool effect. It's not really backbreaking, but usually you do some, you can do some shenanigans in commander that allow you to bring it back repeatedly. So it's a, it's a great fun creature for that format. And it's definitely fun for at least cube April. So cube April, if you think avalanche Riders is fun, please tweet back at us. We'd love to hear about it. Darwin Castle's bio real quick. He was a famous old school magic pro. He was part of the one of the first super teams called Team Your Move Games alongside Rob Doherty and Dave Humphreys. He won the first Team Pro Tour, which is in Washington, D.C., and that's, he's a Hall of Famer in the inaugural Hall of Fame class. Moving on to our fifth-ranked invitational card, Ranger of Eos. 
So Ranger of Eos, it's a 3-2 human soldier for a 3 colorless and a white. It says when Ranger of Eos enters the battlefield, you may search your library for up to two creature cards with convert a mana cost one or less, reveal them, and put them into your hand. If you do, shuffle your library. Yeah, so a creature tutor that's very limited, but you can get two creatures when this enters the battlefield. That's extremely powerful. I remember I first saw this card because it was being played in Birthing Pod decks. It's a great way to get your Viscera Seer, a number of other creatures in that deck from Birds of Paradise on that had one CMC or less. Yeah, so it's played a lot in Modern now because it, especially in the Martyr of Sands life gain deck because it gets Martyr of Sands, it also gets Sarah Ascendant, it gets Thraben Inspector, and it can also get Soul Warden and Soul Attendant to, and that's basically all your creatures. <laughs> it was actually played for a while in some of the Traverse Death Shadow decks, a couple of versions of that, because you could go get yourself two Death Shadows. That seems reasonable. It does seem reasonable. And now that we're talking about it, it was it's been seen since the beginning of Modern because it would get Wild Nakadal and Goblin Guide. Oh, sure. Yeah, this makes sense in some kind of Naya Zoo deck. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. So real quick about Anton Ruel. So he is a Hall of Famer with his brother Olivier Ruel. They're French magic gods, basically. He has just been a lifer. He he and his brother have been into almost every pro tour. He is absolutely fantastic. All right. Our next card is a big one. This is Solemn Simulacrum. Solemn Simulacrum is four mana for a 2-2 artifact creature, Golem. And it reads, when Solemn Simulacrum enters the battlefield, you may search your library for a basic land card. Put that card onto the battlefield tapped, then shuffle your library. And when Solemn Simulacrum dies, you may draw a card. It's just like a little value engine, but so much so that it is a commander staple. It is the most played creature in commander, according to edhrec.com. The fourth most played artifact after Soul Ring, Lightning Greaves, and Swiftfoot Boots. So if you're playing any creatures, you want those cards. It's actually more played than Swords to Plowshares, which in our Swords to Plowshares episode we discussed was way up there, but less played than Cyclonic Rift. Really, if you have a commander deck, this is probably a good card to put in it. Oh, it's colorless. It's versatile. It can go in any deck. Who doesn't want a ramp for four mana, essentially? And it draws you a card. It it was played in standard when it was released, too. It, it, was, it fit so many different little niches that it's been practically a magic staple since it was first created. Yeah, so originally printed in Mirrodin, but they reprinted it in four different commander sets. Starting 2011, and the last one was in 2016, it's going to keep coming back, which incidentally is how people generally use it. They just keep getting lands and drawing cards by cycling through it over and over. So popular, it was an invention. Doesn't seem that powerful, but was an invention in Kaladesh. Its nickname is Sad Robot because the original art, kind of hard to tell to see Yens, but he kind of looks sad. And in subsequent printings, the robot just gets even sadder. Yeah, it's hilariously this tall, Phyrexian-looking robot just kind of looking down, sadly. Sad Robot is just a great name for this card. One of the better nicknames in Magic. Oh, yeah. So, funny enough, Jens Thorin, he's most notable for winning this Invitational. <laughs> okay, great. Well, he's the face of the original Sad Robot, so it goes a long way. We're starting into rarefied air here. Here's We're getting to our top three, and these are all three very recognizable cards. So these three, these top three cards are the kind of cards where the players who designed them knew exactly what they were doing. 
Oh, exactly. they came with something powerful, something interesting, and they've become staples in various formats. So we'll start off with number three. It is the one and only Meddling Mage. So Meddling Mage, it's a 2-2 human wizard for white and a blue. And as Meddling Mage enters the battlefield, you choose a non-land card name. And then spells with the chosen name can't be cast. This card is really interesting, and it has recently become very popular because it is a cornerstone of one of the top decks in modern, the humans deck. Yeah, it's a human... (laughs) And yeah. it's very powerful. There was a long-running joke because I, I'm i not going to lie, listeners. I may have had a playset of this when it came out. I was so enamored with this card. And I could never play it in a deck. It just, you play it, it died to something. It was really sad. You think it would be really good. And so the running joke, especially when it got reprinted in Lara Reborn, was that, oh, this card's so good, but it's not because it just doesn't have a deck. Joke's on that. Yeah, unlike a lot of other cards that, create some kind of denial of your opponent to do something it's not like you get to look at your opponent's hand before you name a card so you really have to know what their deck is and what their deck is doing and in modern um you know that's probably easier to do the other tricky thing here is you don't choose the name when you cast it you choose the name as it enters the battlefield so once the spell has resolved and it it enters the battlefield, the name's already there. So you can't have somebody put this on the stack, and then, you know, if they name Lightning Bolt, you're out of luck. You can't Lightning Bolt it. That may have gotten a, as of this recording, a Magic Pro suspended for three years because he tried to argue it the other way when he knew better. Oh, yeah. Gee, I wonder if that's where I got that reference. (laughs) Speaking of cheaters, so Chris Pakula, who is (laughs) (laughs) is on the art, is famous for... Uh, rooting out the opposite of cheating yes he's famous for the opposite of cheating he was a probably a cornerstone of early magic because he took a very firm strong anti-cheating stance that has really allowed the game to flourish because people can trust that they're not getting cheated when they go play tournament magic and what's funny about it is that he definitely deserves a spot in the hall of fame he missed out his first time around by one vote and then he gets less and less subsequent votes when he's been eligible because people think it's annoying that Wizards of the Coast keeps pushing for Chris Pakula to be in the Hall of Fame. But he deserves it, in my opinion. He's absolutely fantastic. You know, I don't really follow Pro Magic particularly closely, but the people I most respect, I think, are kind of on the Pakula train. He keeps getting the threshold to stay on the ballot now, but never uh, never close enough to getting into the Hall of Fame itself. My understanding from reading all the testimonials is that he was vocal enough and obnoxious enough about the cheating that was happening in the game that he really changed the way cheating was dealt with. And that allowed the game to continue to the point where it is today. So we we owe a lot to the meddling mage. Awesome. So let's move on to our second rated imitational card, Dark Confidant. Dark Confidant is one and a black for a 2-1 human wizard. And at the beginning of your upkeep, you reveal the top card of your library and put that card into your hand. Then you lose life equal to its converted mana cost. It's Bob. It's Bob Maher. So iconic, this card is just called Bob. It is. And it's probably the best invitational art that is on a card because you can clearly see it's Bob Maher. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the other art, you can kind of see their face. You can't really tell what's going on. A meddling Mage is good and Dark Confidant, other than the fact that he's got like an aggressive amount of eyeliner on, is just very much looks like Bob Maher. So notable and so well-loved, it was a top eight card in the Magic Bracket. Yeah, it was. It was in the top eight. It lost to Birds of Paradise, which then, you know, was bolted in the finals by Lightning Bolt. 
I should note, it's not only so iconic that this card is called Bob, this effect is also called Bob. So Duskmantle Seer, for example, which was a card from Gatecrash, had this effect at the beginning of your upkeep for each player. They reveal the top card of their library and then they lose life and put it in their hand. That card is called Party Bob Party because Bob. it's but everybody gets to do it. <laughs> um, when, you know, Ruin Raider is another recent card from the Ixalan block. Same thing. It does this at the end of your turn if you have triggered raid and people called it Pirate Bob or they're just like the Bob effect on this card. Right. They have Dark Tutelage. It's just bad Bob because it was an yeah. enchantment. But it was Pain cool. Seer from Born of the Gods had inspired and when you untap it, you Bob. <laughs> In response, I Bob. It's great that this card led to subsequent designs in black that did that exact same thing because beforehand it was a little too good it was necropotence <laughs> they, they wanted to get away from the necropotence effects and they have phyrexian arena but they can't really go too deep on phyrexian arena as far as designs go so why is this card at number two in addition to being fairly iconic it's really good it sees play in modern and legacy you know it's famous for being in jund mostly in modern it makes legacy decks in dark depths decks that have a lot of, you know, low mana creatures that you just want to draw, like Vampire Hexmage, uh, Sylvan Safekeeper is in those decks, and you're just trying to draw a bunch of lands, so you get to put, you know, lands don't cost you any life to put into your hand. Super competitive. And it's it's interesting because, so Bob Maher was one of the early American magic rates. He was part of kind of the second wave with John Finkel, Huey Jensen, um, that cadre of magic pros he's most famous for pioneering oath decks in extended like he was like maher oath was the deck back in the day and it got him a lot of success and fame he is also part of one of the best matches at all time at worlds where he played john finkel for the 2000 world's finals they both played tinker and bob may have lost (laughs) but sorry bob yeah, but it's 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 really ironic because he was playing Maher Oath when everyone was playing Necropotence, and then the card that's most associated with him is a Necropotence type effect. So you're going to be asking, so if Bob is number two, then what is the best Invitational card of all time? I'm guessing you're not asking that because you already know that it's Snapcaster Mage. Oh. Snapcaster Mage is crazy. So one in a blue for a 2-1 human wizard. Just want to point out, top three all human wizards. It has flash, and when it enters the battlefield, you target an instant or sorcery in your graveyard, and it gains flashback until end of turn. Its flashback cost is just equal to its mana cost. So flashback means you can cast it from your graveyard, and then you exile it. Oh, this card. Far and away, the best of the Invitational cards. Oh, far and away. This is in my spellbook. I played in every format. Oh my god, it does so much. It is so good. Even if you're just flashing it in as a 2-1 blocker. Oh. A uh, 2-1 blocker. It does a lot of damage. Sometimes you just flash it at the end of the turn. You bash your opponent with it. Bolt Snap Bolt is something we've talked about on this podcast many times before. Nice little 4-mana play to deal 6 to your opponent and then have a 2-1 sitting there. Although, chances are, if you're Bolt Snap Bolting, you've just outright killed them. This is a very appropriate last Invitational card printed. This was the final one they printed. Talk about going out on a high note. I mean, every single format it's been printed in and it's currently played in it, it sorry it's currently it's played in right it's played in vintage it's played in legacy it's played in modern it was one of the best decks in standard until they had to rotate it out because it was just that it was just that good 
Yeah, it's even played in Commander for the people who want to put their very expensive modern playable cards in Commander decks, but great in that format as well. I mean, some of us have put like to put duels in our Commander decks, or so we may be crazy. I, I don't know why you're looking at me like that, Christian. <laughs> I don't know why you're looking at me like that, David. <laughs> All I'm saying is I was at my LGS recently, and I was asking people to help me make some cuts in my blue-red artifacts deck, and they all just looked at me and shook their heads when they saw the Mishra's Workshop in my mana base. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. So, yeah, we'll talk about Diego Chan, who is on the likeness of the original Snapcaster Mage. He is Portuguese. He top-aided the 2006 Honolulu Pro Tour, playing one of the more interesting pro tour decks of all time which is owling mine which we'll talk oh, about yeah. yeah one point in on the podcast he also top aided worlds that year in paris cool well he will always be snapcaster mage so kudos diego chan so that's our number one i'm going to go through the list again in order from worst to best rakdos auger mage Brutewater thief shadow mage infiltrator void mage prodigy sylvan safekeeper Avalanche Riders, Ranger of Eos, Solemn Simulacrum, number three, Meddling Mage, number two, Dark Confidant, and the champion number one, Snapcaster Mage. Super solid. I'm so do you think they should keep they should bring back the invitational, David? Yeah, absolutely. I like tournaments with weird formats. I would love them now that they have six Pro Tours, for example, to do cube at a Pro Tour. Probably not an easy thing to do in earlier rounds, but yeah, let's see top eight do a cube draft. Invitationals are a great way to do those kind of interesting things. I also like the invitational card thing. At some point, we'll have to talk about you make the card. I like when they bring in folks from the community or let the whole community vote on a card. The thing they did in M15, where they had a bunch of people who were peripherally involved with magic um, or, you know, other famous people who played magic design particular cards. There was a Penny Arcade one. There was Notch, the Minecraft guy, designed a card. That kind of stuff is very cool to me. Yeah, especially with this push that they should be making about building out a brand and building out personalities in the Pro Tour, restarting the Invitational would, I think, be a great start for that, especially if you can tie it in with some of the digital products, right? I think, as you said, there's a lot of cool, interesting formats you can do, and they can bring back some. But if you could tie it into Arena, like if you could say, okay, we're going to do Arena Duplicate Sealed, for example, just because I may want to play Duplicate Sealed at some point in my life. And, hey, you could play the same pool that the Invitational players played with. How cool would that be? So before we go and leave this show where we've talked about pro players, I want to send a special congratulations to friend of the show, Andrew Ellenbogen, who just won Pro Tour Guilds of Ravnica. Andrew was on our GP Minneapolis show. He wanted to remember Collected Company and shared what he thought was his perfect deck list. Well, I feel like the deck list he entered in standard that allowed him to win the Pro Tour, you know, a couple weeks ago was also pretty good. So congratulations, Andrew. Couldn't happen to a better guy. Also, a special shout out to our friend Sam Eilenfelt, who was named Magic's Rookie of the Year for this last year. Man, we are going to have to get him on the podcast to remember some cards. He probably has some pretty nice cards he wants to remember after being named Rookie of the Year. Yeah, and when Sam comes on, we'll have to remember some Ixalan cards. I sense a story. There is a story. I'll just say that we may have met at the final round of Grand Prix New Jersey last year. That's right. You uh, you sent me a picture of you and Sam when you realized that you both uh, knew me. 
So that was, that was very exciting. Um, congratulations to everybody else who has uh, been on the show or we've talked to and remembered some cards with um, who played in the Pro Tour this weekend. Some really nice finishes by our friends Matt Sicking Johnson and Greg Michael as well, the uh, Pirate Boys of Good Luck High Five fame. So yeah, congratulations, everybody. It's fun to see folks that we've spent a lot of time remembering cards with doing really well at the Pro Tour. Well, thank you for joining us today. You can find us on Twitter at RememberMTG or send us an email at RememberSomeCards at gmail.com. We would love your feedback. Please tell us what cards you want to remember. Make sure you subscribe to us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, especially in iTunes. The more reviews we have, the higher we show up in the rankings and more people can remember cards with you. That's right. Until next time, don't forget to remember some cards. 